I'm Oshan, and welcome to the Musing Mind podcast. I've had this long-standing problem, a quagmire, which is that when someone asks me what this podcast is about, I don't have a kind of handy, well-recognized way of, of conveying that, right? Through this podcast, I try and bring together some topics that uh, very often don't go together, right? I'll usually tell people that it's about consciousness and economics, and sometimes how each might inform the other. But a podcast about consciousness and economics is a weird prospect, right? What does that actually mean? And so sometimes when I'm with an audience who might not despise me for using academic jargon, I'll say that the podcast is about something called emancipatory social science, as laid out by the sociologist Eric Olin Wright. And this is a place where, you know, for me, conversations about consciousness and economics kind of naturally come together. And for Wright, this was a way of describing and constructing social science that is explicitly carried out in order to empower a democratized human flourishing, as opposed to the kind of more traditional ends of social science, which either avoid morality and, and values altogether, or avow some kind of tame proxy like growth or efficiency. But Eric Olin Wright died in 2019, and no one has really kind of picked up on or developed this idea of emancipatory social science, or so I thought, until I discovered today's guest. And so today's episode is with the economist and professor of economic anthropology, Christian Arnsberger. And it, it's a really rare and exciting opportunity for me to explore and, and formalize exactly what emancipatory social science is and what kind of lens it can bring to bear on our interlocking predicaments today and the various strategies we might take up moving forward if our social sciences were explicitly trying to generate not just growth or efficiency, but democratized human flourishing. Christian has a PhD in economics. He's a professor at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. He is a former advisor to the Alternative Bank of Switzerland, and he was a longtime researcher at the Belgian National Science Foundation. He's written a number of books, two of which we're going to be talking about today. Uh, I first came across Christian's work in a 2010 book he published, which was titled Full Spectrum Economics, subtitled Towards an Inclusive and Emancipatory Social Science. And that book was a dialogue between Christian's work in economics and the philosopher Ken Wilber's work in integral theory. Now, if you're familiar with Wilber's work, that might already sound strange, right? Wilber is an expansive, kind of spiritually inclined philosopher. He writes about the evolution of consciousness. Uh, he's a big figure in the meditation world. And so to see his work taken up in a rigorous dialogue with economic methodology, that was already striking. So initially, I thought that this episode would be about that dialogue between Wilbur's work on the evolution of consciousness, kind of both in the past and the future potentials, and how Christian related that to economics. But then I got to reading the rest of Christian's work, and I, I found that actually the Wilberian dialogue was just one example of a much larger body of work that Christian has done to offer a kind of constructive critique of not only neoclassical economics, but even post-neoclassical traditions like behavioral economics and, and complexity economics to formalize the missing elements that we would need to incorporate into our economic methods if we wanted it to become a truly emancipatory discipline and help design a more emancipatory society. So this conversation is about those pieces that Christian has argued are missing. We'll call them critical reflection and existential reflection. And more broadly, it's about reconstructing this idea 
of emancipatory social science in today's context. So moving forward, when people ask me, you know, what this podcast is about, I can just happily give them the link to this episode. Uh, The conversation covers a lot of ground and it builds on itself in a way that might sometimes require patience, but in my opinion, it pays it off tenfold. Uh, Throughout, we cover ideas like what emancipation means in the context of social science, what Ken Wilber's philosophy can bring to economics, uh, Christian's loving critique of complexity economics, the idea of a society's critical spirit, which can function as a parallel to price signals. I I loved that idea. Uh, The role that greater variety can play in changing the course of the economy as as a complex system. And the role that actual policies like a basic income or a job guarantee or empowering people to work fewer hours might play in making that kind of deep existential variety, you know, variety in our forms of life actually viable for people. And finally, uh, thank you to everyone who supports the podcast, whether you share episodes on social media or you rate and review it on Apple podcasts, or especially those of you who support it through Patreon by giving one to $5 a month. That is the only thing that makes this possible. So thank you. Uh, You can find the episode page as well as links to the Patreon at musingmind.org slash podcast. And that's it. So here's my conversation with Christian Arnsberger. All right, Christian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for inviting me. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's a gray day here in Brooklyn, a rainy gray day. Uh, we're, we're near Lake Geneva. We're having a orange and purple sunset. Oh, wow. <laughs> I prefer that. I'll cast that on <laughs> I, I guess you would. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the way that I first came across your work, as we spoke about a bit, was you wrote a book in 2010 called Full Spectrum Economics, yeah. which is this really fascinating fusion. You use kind of Ken Wilber's integral philosophy you mix it with some of your previous work on critical political economy, and, and you put together this framework that introduces a lot of, of, of ideas. So I wanted to, to start here, and maybe for anyone who isn't familiar, I'll let you kind of give a little overview of Ken's work, but he's a really mm-hmm. fascinating mm-hmm. figure, you know, weaves philosophy, spirituality, consciousness studies, and this, but in a very analytic and, and holistic fashion. I, I'd love to start here and touch on this, on what you found using kind of Ken Wilber's framework was able to do for your own thinking and, and why you chose to write a book in dialogue with it, right? What did that kind of add or, or unlock for you? Yeah, uh, well, I, I mean, I, I came across uh, Ken Wilber's work uh, in a different context, in a personal context. I was interested in his overall, you know, kind of spiritual, holistic approach to everything, <laughs> as he calls it himself, like a, you know, right. a, a theory of everything. Um, and I'm, I'm German, you know, so we Germans, we tend to genetically gravitate towards, you know, grand authors who, who say every, <laughs> who say everything about everything. <laughs> so Ken's work was kind of appealing to me uh, in that way, but it was also appealing to me because of the framework that he was, he was offering, which, you know, the so-called AQUAL, A-Q-A-L, all quadrants, all levels approach, which is basically a way of, uh, trying to describe what's going on in reality at every moment uh, in terms of uh, different dimensions of reality and different uh, streams of evolution. And I found that fascinating from the beginning. 
Uh, I, I liked the way he it, it allowed me to put some order onto the mess that uh, that is uh, you know mainstream economics. Mm. Uh, and I, I, what it helped me do mostly, I mean, we, we can get into it, I guess, more in detail, but to, in a nutshell is, is, uh, is to realize that I, as, as, a, as a young economist studying in, in mainstream economics departments, I had been told a you know, super reductionist approach to social reality, which basically looks only at what Wilbur calls the outer aspects of, of, of society, but also of, of humans as economic agents, you know. And so this, the, the, the neglect of the interior dimensions of, of, of the mm. collective and of the, of the individual uh, suddenly struck me. You know, it, 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 so, the, so Wilbur's approach basically helped me to put into words what I had already kind of intuited when I was studying economics and feeling kind of alienated and happy. It's interesting. As I was reading your work, I found myself constantly thinking back uh, to uh, an idea that was actually outlined by the sociologist Eric Olin Wright. Um, and yeah. this was his rough attempt at defining what he called emancipatory social science. And I think his outline is a really nice reference point, both as a lens to look at your work, but also as a field and a vision that I think your work develops in, in really fruitful ways. It did for me, at least. And at a, at a bird's eye level, he defined it like this. He wrote that emancipatory identifies a kind of central moral purpose in the production of knowledge. And he specified that purpose as the elimination of oppression and the creation of the conditions for human flourishing. He defined kind of science as recognizing the importance of systematic scientific knowledge and how the world works in achieving that emancipatory task. And then he defined, he used social as implying that emancipation depends upon the transformation of the social world, not just the inner self, not just the individual, something that in, in Ken's work, I found he's very good too at integrating those two dimensions. Right. Um, note for listeners that your book, Full Spectrum, was actually subtitled Towards an Inclusive and Emancipatory Social Science. <laughs> yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. I want to I start by dwelling for a moment on, on that term emancipation, right? We have social sciences already. We have plenty of them. Uh, they're proliferated across university departments. Uh, what we don't have are a lot of social sciences that explicitly engage either with the term or even the sentiment behind emancipation. And that's always struck as profoundly strange. Um, and interestingly, it's also historically strange, right? Economics used to be a branch of moral philosophy in Adam Smith's day. In the 20th century, we had the Frankfurt School and their critical theory, which you've done a lot of work with. Um, but it kind of fizzled out in the 20th century. And in reading your work, it seems to me <clears throat> like maybe you've had a similar experience of, of finding the the absence of anything that might be labeled as emancipatory interest uh, within social science somewhat strange. So I want to ask what this term emancipation means to you in your context. Over the course of the conversation, we'll develop specifics and ideas, and, and you've done a lot of rigorous work here, but I want to start at a higher level view. What does adding that term emancipatory onto social science mean to your mind? Well, it, it means basically... Uh, drawing inspiration from, broadly speaking, Mar Marxian uh, traditions, uh, the Frankfurt School in particular. It means, first of all, that you as an intellectual, you're going you're gonna to be aware of, of the fact that your task as, a let's say, an economist is to work with categories and ideas and, and uh, concepts that are geared towards 
describing the world in such a way that you can help your fellow society members become aware of the structures that oppress them and us, oppress us, okay? Emancipation is about, uh, for me, is about uh, not only fighting the outer aspects of society, you know, in the standard Marxist way or in, in general progressive uh, fashion, which is to say you stand up against power, you tell truth to power, you tell people about this, the power structures in which they're embedded without being aware of it necessarily. You can even go and tell people about the power structures that actually alienate them and so on. That, that's one mm -hmm. aspect, and it's super important. What, mm -hmm. what, came, what I kind of think I added to that, and, and, and again, uh, Wilbur's perspective helped me spell it out in a way Uh, in, in a nicer way than I had the intuition of before, is that we're also, we also need to emancipate from our inner uh, servitude, the, the way that our psyche, our emotional you know, impulses, our emotional habits, our habits of thinking, of talking to ourselves and so on, are also ways in which Uh, we're oppressed. We, we, we can be oppressed by our need to fill an inner void by consuming, for example. It's not just that, of course, advertising and capitalism and so on, in, in, you know, in, impel us to consume and need us to consume and overconsume. But we're also, at least in the, in the modern West, we're also you know, complicit of that in a certain way because our culture and our inner, you know, construction as individuals has led us to need consumption in a very significant way to fill an inner void or an inner, a form of inner despair that we are not mm. necessarily aware of and that, you know, modern psychoanalysis, but psychology in general, existential psychology is brought to the foreground in a very helpful way. And so mm. for me, emancipatory so social science tries to do all that, which is a mouthful, but, you know, it, <laughs> it's, it's, but, but, but Wilbur's uh, four quadrants, which kind of juxtapose the outer dimensions, which kind of Marxism takes as the objects of uh, uh, emancipation and the inner or in interior dimensions of, you know, the individual and culture and the cultural habits and the spiritual uh, postures that we have and ha the way we react to emotions and how we repress them and all that is also present in Ken's work in a very uh, interesting way together with the outer dimensions. And so I, I, I really like the way in which it, it, it allows to envision Uh, a kind of holistic social science that looks at emancipation from all angles, if you, if you like, you know. This is something that I, I really loved about your work, the way that you provide a rigorous basis to introduce a focus on interiority, right? Subjectivity, phenomenology, consciousness, into the language and orientation of the social sciences. And it's interesting because it seems to me that this theme of trying to reorient our focus from the, you know, reductively objective to a more first-person sensitive analysis of what life is like, of, of whether progress is taking place. This is happening across the board in a variety of places. I mean, I'm thinking back to uh, the philosopher of mind, Philip Goff's book, Galileo's Error, just a couple years ago. He argues that Galileo, you know, in order to make the world 
tractable and legible to mathematical sciences and objective analysis, he literally said that he had to bracket out subjectivity, right? Bracket out the sensory world. And in so doing, he laid the tracks for a modernity that left subjectivity behind, right? Left it in that bracket where, where Galileo placed it and carried on with our objective methodologies, forgetting that if we're going to reject the dualism between matter and spirit, that we'll have to reconcile the exterior and the interior, as I mean, as Ken Wilber tries to do. Um, and this is also happening in places like 4E or an active cognitive science, where you know the theory of, of value, the idea of what value is, is fundamentally phenomenological, right? Value there is first and foremost an embodied dynamic. It's it's enacted in perception, which kind of forces this reckoning between cognitive science and phenomenology. Um, and even in, in economics, I mean, certainly in, in Wright's notion of emancipatory social science, it's predicated on, on flourishing. And I, I don't really think he developed that enough, the question of what flourishing actually is. But across the, the heterodox economic space, there is this kind of growing push for this more holistic idea of, of well-being to, to constitute progress. And even, I mean, this is breaking from the theme of, of reintroducing interiority a bit, but more about that broader idea of what emancipation looks like in practice. I just saw the other day, uh, there was a piece in the New York Times by Danielle Carr, and she did something that I thought was, was really admirable, which is that she tried to introduce and define the term reification in the New York Times, which oh, is wow. really difficult, you know, a thing to do, but I thought she did really well. And on this idea of emancipation, one thing that resonates with me is she was defining it as the way in which social constructions come to appear to us and, and we perceive them as solidified objective facts. We take them as our given environments that we cannot change, whereas That's in right. fact, they are malleable. They can be constructed, deconstructed, reconstructed. And I think this notion of emancipation has a lot to do with showing us that which is more malleable maybe than we than we initially well, habitually it, perceive it to be. Exactly. I mean, at, and to that point, it, it, it actually resonates so much with uh, part of the work I've been doing more recently on uh, you know, ecological economics and, and ex existential economics, uh, uh, where I talk about the other side of, of reification, which is that that we also take often take as given our own inherited culturally, emotionally, uh, psychologically inherited way of being a human being. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know. Uh, what it means to be reasonable, rational, what it means, to, you know, what has meaning, what doesn't, what's, what's a good way to live, what's a bad way to live, what, what's, a, what's the right way of, 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 of hiding your emotion in, in the Western case very often or, or expressing it too much or whatever, you know. And, and we, we take all these things, these images of the human also as given structures, and they also turn out to often contribute to our alienation and, and so one important concept that I that I work with in in my research is what I call anthropological malleability mm. not just the malleability of structures outer structures you know like uh, institutions mechanisms technologies whatever which is the what, what Wilbur would call the right hand side of, of the of the matter which is super important but also uh the the malleability of ourselves as humans which you know the whole human potential movement of the 60s and 70s brought to the foreground 
existential psychology and, 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 and others have also tried to, to bring to, to, to the fore. And, and, and it turns out that, for example, by, by looking at how other cultures of the present or of the past have, have done things, you know, anthropology becomes a, not just a way of studying uh, interesting, weird other populations. Anthropology then becomes a way of looking at I mean, you know, I'm not talking about cultural appropriation. I'm talking about the fact that once you realize that other human beings are doing things so differently, also from the inner point of view, the way they are, they, they experience themselves as humans, the, the way they give meaning to things, the way that they are talking to themselves in, in their head or not, or whatever, the images that come up and the, the symbols that are being mobilized and the archetypes and all that, all that stuff, you know, is also can be looked at as really looking at the way indigenous populations, for example, just show and carry and, 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 and bear witness to a different way of being human, uh, which is actually... In, in, in some ways, much more congenial to what we need, for example, ecologically, for example, you know, socially. Uh, it, it shows us that our inner structures are also malleable. So that, and, and I think, again, emancipation has to do with both at the same time. Yeah, I really like that. The bringing of these two perspectives together is, is the theme I want to harp on today. Um, and it's interesting, you have me thinking back to, I had a conversation on this podcast a couple months ago with Chris Lethaby, who is a philosopher of cognitive science, and he focuses on, on psychedelics. And okay. one, of the, one of his kind of main angles that he's done a lot of work on, if he kind of summarizes the import of the experience, was it, it gives people a first-person sense that things can be otherwise, in, in very much this interior way that, that you're talking about. And it's one thing to, to be told that, to hear it, to read about it, but to have the experience oneself can be a, a very jarring, liberating or, or terrifying experience. It's, it's disorienting, maybe is the way to put it. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to, to Eric Owen Wright in, in the way that he talks about emancipatory social science. His kind of core critique of capitalism there, which is really just an echo of the Marxist idea that capitalism can create potentials for this kind of universalized human flourishing, right? It develops means of production and technology, and it might make it look like we'll be able to extend this, you know, particular standard of living um, across the board to everybody, uh, despite even whatever that might neglect about what happens internally. And yet something within its structure, within the logic of capitalism kind of prevents and blocks the realization of, of that, of those potentials, right? So it creates potentials and simultaneously obstructs their realization. And one interesting note that I find here is that the obstruction is kind of painted almost as an active process, that there's a feature of capitalism or a tangle of features that have this kind of causal force that prevents that realization of potentials. And I find that compelling and interesting um, and, you know, you can get into the contradiction between value and wealth. But in reading your work, I actually got an, the opposite sense, which I really enjoyed, which was that what I, I felt you were trying to do is point out not some active force that is preventing us from realizing our emancipatory potentials, but rather that there's something missing in the structure and methodology of economics, the absence of which is, is what perpetuates this failure to realize a more emancipatory system. It's like, you know, trying to plant a, a garden in a spot that doesn't get much sunlight. You'll be missing a critical component. And to be more specific, uh, what I have in mind here is your emphasis on critical and existential reflection, 
um, these kind of two ingredients are both critical to your picture of what human beings are or, or can be and, you know, what most, if not all kind of current forms of economics are missing. So I wanted to ask you about these two capacities, critical and existential reflection and, and their role in this kind of evolutionary dynamic of, of realizing emancipatory potentials. It's a bit of a complicated story, but basically what, what started me thinking about these things was the following. I was always very uneasy about, you know, about the way we economists, like we, you know, the mainstream economists in, into whose tribe I was being co-opted as a student, were looking at the agents which, whom we were studying. Okay, so basically the, the, the stance of the economist is to say, in order to uh, tell you how to improve society, I need to build formal models that portray economic agents. So my fellow society members, uh, you know, in fact, but, but economic agents as kind of, you know, brainless, witless, reflectionless, idiotic billiard balls <laughs> whom, yeah. you know, we're going to be pushing around, you know, in a well-meaning way, we economists, you know, we, we really think we want to improve society, but we, we're going to do it in a kind of super technocratic way where we assume away uh, all of the economic agents' capacities to think by themselves and to formulate what they want. We're going to kind of monopolize all these capacities just for us economists we're going to build a theory of, of what a good society should be while ignoring our own, you know, blind spots, like major blind spots. We're going to build a, an economy that's a market economy that's, you know, and not something else. We're going to build an economy where labor is sold for wages and not something else, but and so on. And, and so we're going to have all these assumptions. And then we're going to try to, to devise an incentive system like taxes and, and price mechanisms and what have you, which are going to steer this bunch of billiard balls into the right direction, okay? Which means basically we're going to move the billiard table in such a way that the, the balls roll in the right direction. And by doing that, we're, we're kind of assuming that the worst thing that could happen is that the agents, the people that we're studying – should look up and tell us, hey, this is not at all what we want. You know, we want something else. And so I, I, I just noticed that the way social science was being done in economics was to kind of have a strong dualism where the economist is the seat of reflection and criticism and the ability to, to you know, formulate what's meaningful and the agents are just kind of executing the program of the economist. This is really kind of the way that mainstream economics is working. And once I, I became aware of that, I thought, oh, my God, I can't stand working like this. I, I've got to venture into domains of knowledge where, you know, we economists could lend, I mean, could realize that these billiard balls are not billiard balls. They're human beings. They're agents in society who have critical uh, capacities, who have the capacity to think about what's the meaning of their lives, why their lives are meaningless right now, why, how they could be made better, uh, and 
we should study the way in which these critical and existential capacities for reflection can be mobilized by the agents in order to uh, to make society better from the from the bottom up, not just from mm-hmm. the top down. And uh, th- that led me to thinking about the notion of uh, critical performance of the economy. So basically, the way economists see the economy right now and still do uh, is basically in terms of, of, of material performance. Okay, GDP growth, the accumulation of wealth, uh, technology, technological progress, and so on and so forth. What about uh, critical uh, performance of the economy, which is, does the way in which the economy is organized today allow everyone in the economy to have the time, resources, energy, capacity to think about what a better economy would look like and how we want to get there? And what about existential uh, performance of the economy, which would be just to ask... Does the economy, the way it's organized today, uh, you know, with all the stress and, 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 and anguish and so on, does it even allow people to actually think, reflect on the meaning of their lives and why they feel their lives are alienated or meaningless and what they would like to do to make them more meaningful? Mm. And the answer is in, most, in all economic models, uh, certainly in the neoclassical ones, those two potentials for reflection are assumed away. (laughs) So we're basically assuming that we're already in an economy where those capacities, see, that's that's a very human potential kind of way of putting it, but I I like it in a way. I mean, it's, it's where those capacities for critical and existential reflection have been, by assumption, cut out of people. They're not exercising them. They're assumed to not even know that there's an economy, not even want to think about the meaning of their lives. And so, you know, it's our task as economists to do it for them. And, and, and that, that dualism kind of has now become totally unacceptable for me. I mean, the way of doing social science as a kind of technocratic, you know, abstract uh, uh, discipline is, is, seems to me complete. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that macroeconomics or some knowledge about how the economy works can't be helpful coming from an economist, but should never be like this dogma that you kind of make descend upon people whom you assume know nothing and are ignorant and stupid and just need to be steered and guided. And it's interesting because you kind of show how this is grounded or at least can find justification in the work of someone like Frederick Hayek, right? Where Hayek his whole idea is, you know, the the economy is this vast, complex system that certainly no centralized organization can have total information on and certainly no individual agent. And since it is so difficult or impossible in his view to do that, no agent should even try that you except shouldn't think himself. about the economy. <laughs> right, except, except himself. The economy. Well, that's a very significant exception, isn't it? It's the, it's the most significant exception, which shows the underbelly of the way positivist social science works. It's You, you deny everyone the capacity that you as a scientist or economist or intellectual you know keep for yourself which is the the capacity to think about society and about the meaning of life and you you kind of decree that it, it's it shouldn't be exercised by anyone else because if if it does then it's there's disturbance and unrest and and, and you the economy becomes very unpredictable and you know 
people might even want to have a, a non-market economy instead of a market economy. My God, where oh, are we no. going? You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, in Hayek and the whole, and, and it's translated towards into the, I mean, it's, it's kind of seeped into the neoclassical uh, position in economics, although it's more discreet there. I mean, I was never told that explicitly, but I kind of teased it out over the years that, that, there's this anti-theoretical stance, basically, which sounds strange because economics is so theoretical. But what I mean by that is just like, you know, Edmund Burke had this idea that the people, that no one, no one should be doing theory because theory is a way of, uh, you know, pretending that you can have a vision of the whole while being only a part. And, and that's illegitimate for, for, for Burke and also then later for Hayek because, it makes you as an individual uh, into a, you know, allegedly totalitarian thinker because you think you can look at the whole economy or the whole of reality, even worse, you know, with, with, with Wilbur, and then somehow you, you're going to impose it on others, which is, which is total bunk. I mean, just because I have a theory of all of society doesn't mean I'm going to impose it. I mean, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to be annoying to, other people who have other theories, but but I'm not going to impose it, you know. Uh, but but they they really, I mean, the whole neoliberal mindset is averse to normal people theorizing and thinking deeply about their lives. You know, everybody should just be going on, going about their little local business, right? And should shut up about about you know protesting for a, a different economy or. For, for you know w less work or a more meaningful life and, but, but these are the topics that are so important and we, we see it now how how how, how huge the, the 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 yearning is in in every western and in, in, in every population almost you know for more meaning less drudgery you know more ecological gentleness and and all that and 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 it, it's it, it comes from you and i from the people were economic agents, not just from the theorists who are supposed to be making up these grand schemes uh, for us. You know that that's just this this way of doing social science is, is kind of yeah. I, I no longer subscribe to it at all. If I if I ever have. So would it be fair to summarize um, critical reflection as the capacity to articulate one's critique of the system on the whole, this kind of negative dimension, and then existential reflection as the positive vision of for the system on the whole, a kind of normative vision of what would be better? Uh, that, that could be one way. I would put it more, I mean, or also as critical reflection being about the system and uh, existential reflection also being about yourself as a, 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 a a human person that's inside a system and the way the system allows you or doesn't allow you to, to formulate what's meaningful to you and to understand how your, your, your quest for meaning could, could you know, impact the way you want to work or the way you want to consume or not consume or, you know, and so yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think I, I want to draw these, draw these ideas out a little bit. And one way to do that, I think would be to look at, a critique of that you've made of complexity economics. One of the things I really enjoyed about your full spectrum book was that it wasn't just a critique of neoclassical economics. You then say even the the post neoclassical bundle of traditions like behavioral and neuroeconomics and institutional that these and, and complexity all kind of reproduce the same basic flaw. 
Um, yes. And so in regards to complexity economics, you know, even though they can model disequilibrium systems and they use agent-based modeling and they assume, you know, dynamic evolutionary systems and there's bounded rationality that still there's this absence at the heart of how complexity economics models humans and the economy and that this absence is consequential enough that we there's still an imperative to develop a new framework that even complexity will reproduce the same kind of toothless paradigm where agents lack that capacity to exercise and realize those potentials. So I wonder if you could tell me a bit about your critique of, of complexity economics a little more. You, you pretty brilliantly set it out right there. So I, I'm, I'm not sure I can formulate it better. But, uh, <laughs> but what I, I do want to make explicit is how Wilbur's four-quadrant approach uh, allowed me to put that into words. Mm, yeah, and to realize the literally the location of what's wrong with even those glorified uh, neoclassical branches, you know, where, like you said, complexity, behavioral, and so on, which are you know within mainstream economics are considered, you know, people like Beinhocker and stuff like that. I mean, they 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 consider this like the the, the new promised land of, of, of uh, economics in the sense that finally we're not just doing equilibrium atomized, uh, you know, uh, process-less economics. We're also doing process and we're understanding how error uh, comes in and so on and so forth. And I understand all that and it's all, it's all great and it, it, it makes for full careers and Nobel Prizes and so on. <laughs> but as you said, it, it, it perpetuates one particular flaw which is, again, in, in Wilberian terms, if you like, is the absolute reduction of all the objects of social science and economics to what he calls the right-hand quadrants, which is the, you know, the, the, the exterior aspects of societies and individuals, the, the, the surface aspects, the behavioral and systemic and mechanical and you know, even biological, but in the sense of neutral, sub- subjectivity-less uh, processes. Okay, and so just because you introduce complexity, and I, I agree, it's fascinating, and I was fascinated by it. It's it's no, I think it's no happenstance that Hayek himself, you know, ventured into complexity science, and was interested in that because. Um, it, he, he, I think he clearly saw that you, you could have a, a, a kind of cybernetic view of the economy that was still neoliberal and market-oriented, and indeed it is. You know, most of it is. Not all of it, but... Uh, so, so what Wilbur's framework helped me realize is that even though you can endlessly improve and, you know, extend the realm of um, the, exter- the study of exteriors if you like, uh, you're still going to be on a very fundamental level missing at least half of reality. And the problem with that is that in that half of reality, so what Wilbur calls the left-wing quadrants, which are basically the interior of the collective, so culture, values, you know, democracy, discussion, muddling through, uh, messy you know, symbolic aspects of collective life and the interior of the individual, which is, you know, subjectivity, emotions, again, values, spirituality, all if, but by neglecting all that, it's just not, it's, it's not like you're neglecting something secondary or whatever, optional. You, 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 in a way, you're neglecting 
all the aspects <laughs> of reality where suffering is located, where yearning is located, where hope and pain and, and joy and everything that counts in our lives in the end is located. And you, you're only studying the tools and the machines and the, the systems and, and, and that, that, that are supposed to help alleviate suffering and bring about joy and, 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 and happiness and, and, and so on. But, but you're never looking at whether they do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, so uh, and, and, and in that sense, Marxism was perfectly right. It, that, that's the way in which then those machines and, and mechanisms and systems and, 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 you know, even biological evolutionary models and all that can be co-opted by very quietly by capitalism. And it, they have been totally, you know, and used only for the privilege of a certain class of people to make more money, not caring at all whether all the tender, subjective, interior dimensions of reality are being, you know, shot, uh, <laughs> destroyed or not. It doesn't matter to that paradigm because it's not looking at that. I, I do wonder what this would look like in practice for an economic methodology to take this kind of critical and existential rationality seriously. Uh, so, for example, let's say you gave a talk at the Santa Fe Institute tomorrow. And oh, my God. Beinhocker's there, and, and they, they, you, you just critique them. You lay everything out, and they agree wholeheartedly. And the question is, how could complexity economics do this better, or can it, right? Can you represent critical reflection, for example, as a computational parameter within agent-based modeling? Can you write an equation that integrates into the calculus that economists use? Or is this, this domain of critical rationality inherently somewhat qualitative, which I think might make the critique not so much of complexity, but really of any computational, mathematically grounded that's method right. that uses that first. That's interesting. And, and it's, when I ask this too, I'm thinking of my last conversation on this podcast, I had the evolutionary biologist, uh, David Sloan Wilson on, and, and his critique of neoclassical was exactly this, that, that it begins with math, which precludes a certain degree of fidelity to human life. And he contrasted this with Darwinian evolution as a body of work, which begins not with math or computational theory, but with a qualitative, just linguistic idea it begins with words, the, the idea of variation, selection, replication. And from that basis, evolutionary science has then come to use computational and mathematical models in specific contexts, but not as the kind of general baseline approach to modeling the system. So I'm curious if, if this reflects what you're thinking, whether it's possible for an approach like complexity to integrate these these dimensions or if there's kind of a, a methodological impasse there well that's 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 the next one question it's also very difficult um because th i mean my my spontaneous answer would be who knows i i, I would be willing to be open-minded i mean i'm i'm kind of skeptical as to the possibility of reducing l l let's take a phenomenon that i I mentioned earlier that this is going to sound a bit a, a bit uh, quaint the way I put it too quickly, but we can maybe come back to it. You know, I, I work on what I call existential economics, in which, for example, there's the the insight that, and it's 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 supported by you know lab work and, and experimental uh, uh, psychology and so on, uh, that when our fear of death and our fear of suffering and fragility is is made salient you know is, is like you know is, is, is particularly present in our minds and hearts and, and guts you know uh, we tend 
to gravitate towards uh, towards things that are going to help us uh, alleviate that fear and that pain. And so, we, for example, we we will tend to, at least in the in the in the modern West, which is always a caveat that I introduce because that that theory is is, is probably itself kind of historically situated and, and culturally specific. It's not a universal theory, but mm-hmm. uh, the subjects in you know, let's say in in, in the United States or Europe uh, broadly, uh, are going to gravitate towards consuming more, wanting to earn more money, wanting to secure themselves through possessions. So, so there's a link between things that help capitalism establish and solidify itself and the way in which subjectively in the interior of our souls and hearts and so on, we deal with the fear and the pain of being mortal and fragile and, and finite. So let's, let's take that, uh, for example. I, I, I don't know whether we could ever put that kind of idea into a mathematical expression or equation or something you know I, I i i strongly doubt it which which means that basically i guess we could we could work on models that that reproduce some of the characteristics that come with that kind of uh phenomenon so we, we could probably introduce into our consumption functions you know and, and uh, some variables that some could represent or approximate you know the effect of of ecological or existential angst on consumption, maybe I don't know. You know, uh, and and so there might be a, 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 some distance that could be covered. But in the end, what what Wilbur is 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 saying in, in, in his later work, and Wilbur and his and his uh, colleagues at the you know doing in, work on integral uh, stuff, is that we we're going to need a multiplicity of methodologies. We can't just have one reductive uh, way of always approaching something even even in the way you just stated like okay we have phenomena that are initially described by words but then we we somehow want to put them into equations why because you know we're, we're like the people who the guy who's looking for his keys under the under the street lamp you know that story that famous story like why are you looking for your keys here you know uh, someone asks him and he said well i they're not here. They're over there in the dark. But over there, it's dark. So I'm looking here because there's light. <laughs> and and the, the 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 general stance of of, of modeling economists, and, and I don't mean this to be, you know, derogatory or I I, I know. I mean, I've been there. I've <laughs> I've studied that for years, and I know the the good intentions it comes from. And I so I, you know, it's not a, it's not like a war. But I, I'm I'm just really insisting on the fact that. As well-intentioned as it is, this kind of funneling, this reduction of what matters to equations is only there because we we want to be able to somehow prove our points and, 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 and formulate our advice about the economy from a position of, of expert knowledge where we we somehow want to be able to show graphs of trajectories of variables and predictions and so on and that might be you know part of the the game to be played and so i i guess i would answer the people in in at the santa fe institute well if you think you could approximate some of the processes i've talked about with some variables and the outcomes of your models would capture 
what's essential, right. then okay, why not? I mean, I, I, I you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure you're going to be able to do that, but why not? You know, but, but my, my point is more that once we take into account critical reflection and existential reflection on the part of persons, not just agents, but persons who are living in the economy, who are living, hoping, loving, suffering, dying in the economy, worrying about their retirement, you know, being having their rights taken away, whatever, and, and, and being outraged and all these aspects. It just makes economics into an intrinsically political science. And I think even complexity in Santa Fe people probably wouldn't like that so much, you know, uh, in the sense yeah. that they, they, it would seem to them then, well, okay, well, then you, we're going to go into journalism or something. You know, that I've, I'm just, I'm, I'm actually quoting some professors of mine, you know, mm. if you don't do formalized modeling, you, you're just going to do journalism and you're just going to be blah, blahing about, you know, general ideas about the economy and, and writing pages and pages of nice ideas, which are not grounded in so-called science by which they mean right wing uh, I mean, in right side you know right side quadrant right uh, quantitative uh, aspects yeah well I mean, that's exactly it right if if we if we have this uh sense this kind of epistemological era where we say you know to, to really do economics you have to have the models to back it up the, the kind of consequence of that is we're disempowering folks who don't know how to do those models from contributing their own opinions their own voices into that conversation exactly Exactly. And, 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 and it means that basically at some point, I mean, part of economics has to go back towards sociology, you know, fieldwork with, with actual people. And ecological economics, for example, is, is very strong in that way. Ecological economics has totally relinquished the hope for a kind of positivistic, scientific modeling approach and is going back towards actual communities of, of people and and trying to be very careful about, you know, spelling out its its own ideological presuppositions. I mean, you you know, there's a lot of guardrails you have to bring with you, and, and so on. But you 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 basically go back to the field and to real people, and you work with them towards solutions that come from them, which is basically Horkheimer's and the Frankfurt School position about organic intellectuals in a way, even though he formulated it in a Marxist uh, framework, but it's the same kind of idea. And uh, on the other hand, um, s economics also needs to go more towards f philosophy and 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 uh, and, and uh, phenomenology and 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 and, and you know, existential psychology and disciplines that are really geared towards first-person accounts of what people are going through as they live in the economy. And trying to make sense of it. So there's an interpretive dimension. You need to have hermeneutics. You need to have, and of course, it's all, you know, the, even as I'm saying it, I realize how cumbersome it feels <laughs> to, to the standard economist who think she can study four years of math and then have basically the tools to answer questions about, you know, should we, should we raise the interest rate or should we lower it, you know, and right. stuff like that. And, but but it's a whole different world of 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 what science is for and about and 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 it's it is a rift and it, and unfortunately it comes down then often to i mean the dialogue then with economists with mainstream economists kind of breaks down they either 
tell you, in spite of everything that everything that you've been saying and, and calling for, they're actually already doing, uh, or or that you know they you, you're not doing science and they don't want to talk to you, and then it's all about power games within the university. You know, it's it's all who gets the most funding and just to, to hell with with epistemology and dialogue and discussion and but it's really it's really often like that yeah mm. i i really i really resonate with this idea of kind of elevating or re-elevating the status of things like sociology and anthropology as, as a kind of well i i, I didn't even mention anthropology but you're right of course obviously yeah obviously yeah 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 you mentioned that earlier and one of my favorite uh, examples here that i think still doesn't get enough play is eleanor ostrom's work where yes. you know she had before Eleanor, there was this this idea, right? Tragedy of the Commons, which I've spoken about enough on this podcast. This idea that basically we can't manage resources as a commons because we're so self interested that we'll just deplete them. And so what what Ostrom does is she says, well, let me actually go where this is happening on the ground and live with the people and and see how it looks. And in fact, it's much more complicated, right? It turns out that if you follow particular design principles, you have certain institutions we can do with that very well. Um, so this this basis of seeing on the ground. What's actually happening totally contradicted the theory. Um, That's right. In, in a but, way that but, I think we need see, more of. Yeah, but you see, th then there's the other direction that I mentioned towards more, you know, philosophy, phenomenology, and so on, where actually also you can, I mean, you, you can't question, uh, you know, Hardin's, Hardin's uh, tragedy of the commons in the same way as Ostrom did, but you can also question it just from a purely philosophical common sense point of view that why do we need to assume that individual everyone is so selfish i mean you know because it's an assumption he, he states it as a fact but of course as soon as you do a, a, like a modicum of, of epistemology you of course realize that it's it's a it's a starting point for discussion it's not like some so, some eternal uh, uh, truth and so right. uh, you, you can bring in the idea of uh, holistic consciousness and, and ecological, uh, you know, uh, awareness, and 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 then go into, you know, fields of psychology where you you talk to people not not so much on the social field, but in in contexts where they're able to tell you about why they don't think about nature so much. But actually, then they, when they tell you that they don't think about nature, they suddenly become aware that they don't, and they get sad or they get mad at themselves or they get angry at the way they were brought up and you know and so on but mm. what matters indeed is is bringing the first person voice of the human being back into science which is precisely what neoclassical and even complexity economics for all its virtues and, and strengths and so on doesn't do it's it's a bunch of speechless silent particles interacting and being modeled as interacting. Hmm. The only one who speaks is the economist who's modeling it. And the billiard balls or the, the particles or whatever they are, the agents or the, the, the cellular automata and so on, don't talk. Never. They never do. Because that's the one thing modeling cannot reproduce is speech and, and first-person subjectivity, at least for now. I mean, who knows? But again, <laughs> right. you know, I, I'm highly skeptical. So, we're, I mean, we're talking about whether it's possible for computational, mathematically grounded economic orientations to assimilate and adopt this idea of critical rationality, right? To make it a fundamental tenet 
um, in their world. So, you know, maybe we can devise uh, better models that have higher fidelity to the unruliness and expansiveness of what a human being both, both is and can become. But I, I share your sentiment. I'm pretty skeptical of that, though I'm curious. But to your point, I don't think that amending the existing modeling methodologies in economics is the most impactful way forward. And if we take this idea of critical reflection seriously, I don't think that including it in our models is how we go about devising a society where it comes into fuller expression in this kind of emancipatory fashion. And instead, I think that the more important lever here is the question of, you know, are ordinary people in their everyday lives able to express that critical reflection so that it doesn't remain a fleeting feeling, right? But if we feel it strongly enough, it can become a causal force on our behaviors, on our forms of life. So <clears throat> to, to show what I mean here, let's go back for a moment to the kind of human beings that all the current economic modeling approaches kind of take us to be, they model us to be. Um, in your full spectrum book, you put it this way, you wrote, in particular, such an agent has no ability to form a judgment about what is wrong with her life in the ongoing economy, or about what aspects of that economy should be changed if her life is to be truer to what, through her religion, spirituality, and or culture, she views as her fullest human potential. And so I, I can speak from very direct experience here that most human beings I know absolutely form judgments about what is wrong with the shape of their lives in the economy, right? We all have these moments where we look at the overall landscape of what kind of life the structure of the economy tends to promote and incentivize. And we can feel the kinds of possibilities it both presents and withholds from us and feel that something is deeply wrong with the shape it's giving to our lives. And this is where the problem is, where, where I think the block is, right? If critical reflection is going to play a role in the shaping of our economy and the shaping of our lives, we need to not only feel that there's something wrong, but we need to have the, the real resources and capacity to act on that feeling that our lives are misaligned with our own interior values. And to act on that in a way that makes that preference legible to the system, we need a certain amount of resources, right? A baseline assurance that our survival won't be threatened, that we'll be existentially okay, right? I'm not going to just spring into a different way of living if it means I might not have health care or might not have health care for my children, or I might not earn enough to live a basically dignified life in terms of prevailing social norms, which is the minimum baseline that Adam Smith himself looked towards as, as you know, what a market economy should always provision for everyone, no matter what. And if people had that baseline, they could signal this critical preference through enacting different ways of living without that kind of disproportionate cost. And if enough people signal that, if it's scaled, it could acquire causal power to actually shift the system, to force it to respond. But I mean, for so many people, the sentiment can arise and we can feel it deeply and painfully. But then all we can really do is just go back to our same shitty jobs the next day, because most people don't have the resources to just change their lives at a whim, you know, in a way that suits them better. And we don't have social structures that mitigate that process for people either. Well, Exactly. And, and it, yeah, and, and it's already what the, you know, the Marxist uh, intellectuals in the 19th century were experiencing that it, it you know, when you, because they saw their main, I mean, Marx himself, but, but others as well saw their main task, not so much to model 
capitalism with equations. And then, I mean, that was done later in the Soviet perversion of, of so-called communism, which is complete, you know, is another version <laughs> of the same, of the same right-hand reductionism. It's not better by any, by any stretch. I mean, Mar Marxism at its best was not about predicting the trajectory of certain variables in the economy or planning from A to Z how the economy should work. It, it was more about Un, like uh, about freeing the capacity of workers to think about their own predicament by 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 offering, and that's what I think intellectuals do have a, a task to do as professors and, and, and scholars and so on is to formulate categories and ideas and concepts in such a way that suddenly people who are caught, including ourselves, okay, who are caught in situations of non-emancipation, we suddenly think, oh, yeah, wow, okay, you know, eureka, tilt, wow, aha, that's what's going on. Okay, I see. And, I, and the same is true nowadays, for example, for, MM, for modern monetary theory in a completely different, you know, area, which is, I, I was very enlightened by Stephanie Kelton's book. Kelton's kind of genius is to, to put everything in such plain but rigorous terms that you think, oh my God, I had never thought of it this way. And now that I do, it's not like reality has suddenly changed magically, but I know where to look for levers or, you know, like, like points of pressure, or at least I know where to look for, to, if I want to understand what's wrong. And, and if I, if I want to get a sense of what I could do maybe together with others to, to change, or at least I understand the oppression. I mean, it might be small comfort, of course, because like you said, then you, you still need to go back to work and pay your mortgage and so on and so forth. But at least you, you can start sharing awareness with others and so on. And that, that, that's what emancipatory social science is fundamentally about, which is, for example, why I, I tend to give very few purely academic talks. So I, 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 I mean, apart from the fact that I'd probably never be invited to the, to the Santa Fe Institute, <laughs> but I, that the kind of talk I would give there, I would almost feel, to be honest, I mean, sorry, Santa Fe people, if you're listening to this now, and <laughs> I, I probably feel it's a waste of time in a sense, because I would know we'd be standing there, you know, talking endlessly about methodology and, 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 and concepts. And I, I agree, I don't agree, this and that and so on. And which, you know, is, is an interesting aspect of academic life. But I, I, I'm more interested in talking f to non-academic audiences. And, and I, I know that that's viewed by many of my colleagues as a kind of complacency, you know, yeah, you just go talk to non-academic audiences because easier that's right you don't get challenged you, you're just there with your you know discourse and everybody nods there's this prejudice or preconception that only by speaking with other academics can you really make your work more relevant and that's that's not that's not my experience at all but but i but you know i mean for example the point you raised earlier about could we you know, uh, model some aspects of critical and existential uh, reflection through some, you know, mathematical or other expression. I mean, it's not, it, it's interesting. And, and if there were progress to be done, I'd welcome it. But, but I think it's more urgent to 
take those insights from from the work I do and and kind of try to convey them to quote unquote normal people. And and uh, it's actually I was actually asked that once in a in a in a in an evaluation uh, interview at my faculty. One of our vice deans told, asked me, "Well, so you know, I, I look at your CV and you're 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 mostly giving talks." To, to like citizens' associations and, and, and so, so are you an activist or are you a, are you a scholar? <laughs> and I, and right. I looked him in the eye and I was thinking of the two books that we're talking about now. And I said, you know, I, I'm a scholar <laughs> and I write about activism in, in a particular way. And I wrote three books about it. If you want, I could give them to you. He kind of, okay. <laughs> that almost kinda, lays bare this assumption. Yeah, yeah, that lays bare this assumption of kind of the, the cleaving of, of a normative vision. You shouldn't have normative aspirations within the academic realm of economics. It's not the place for it. Well, okay, wait. I mean, you, you could have normative. I mean, I have lots of colleagues who work with mathematical models of normative issues. Mm. See, it's not even that. Right. You shouldn't work in a way that presumes that you need to communicate your work to the actual people people who are being talked about in your work mm, i see yeah see what i mean it's it's yeah. more like a i mean it's, it's changing a bit now like i said you know the, the new heterodox occur, you know uh, currents and, and schools are, are moving away from that but but in my whole upbringing as an economist i'm i'm, I'm 56 now so i studied like 35 years ago and Back then, it was it was really like that. I mean, I had a colleague who said he, he was a labor economist, bless his soul, and he he was working on unemployment and you know and poverty and and and, and the working poor and you know on, on on really progressive subjects. So that was not the issue. The issue was, he said, I would never present my work to actual unemployed people because they they don't know anything about 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 economics. So they would they would just crit- critique my approach, knowing nothing about it. So he was actually f- kind of afraid of, of the idea that some you know random unemployed guy could sit there and say, you know what, your model, I, I don't get it. This is not me. Who are you talking about? Are you talking about us? I don't live like those agents. I you know X <laughs> that you're that you're modeling in your in your paper. Uh, but he, his reaction would be to say, well, that's because you don't understand, you know, you, you don't right. get it. You haven't done the lit review. That's right. Something like that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. This, this kind of delivers us. I think we've been talking around an idea of yours that I really loved, which you gave a nice French name that I would, I would butcher, but we can crudely <laughs> translate it into English yeah. as the critical spirit of a, of a society. Oh, l'esprit critique. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, you know, this idea, it, it's, it's, I loved how you frame it. It's a parallel of or it can be at least, of how prices work in a market economy yes. in relation to critical rationality. And we have, you know, Hayek expands this idea of prices as these information signals that emerge from the activity of rational agents who make their voluntary transactions in a market economy. And markets kind of process this information and calibrate for efficient, optimal outcomes. And in a world where people could actually express their critical rationality in a way that registers. Um, you write that these would operate similar to how prices do. And I actually want to, I want to bring in a quote here because I thought you described it just beautifully. You wrote, in the same way as market prices are a key emergent property of a complex adaptive system of narrowly instrumental rational individuals, 
a key emergent property of a complex adaptive system of critically rational individuals is the social system's critical spirit. Critical spirit is not meant as a metaphor for some fuzzy or elusive spiritual entity. It's not a set of numerically measurable quantities such as prices, but it nevertheless designates something quite definite, namely the overall normative atmosphere of the society which allows individuals to form their initial aspiration for a better society and to flesh out this desire with critical theories which change through contacts with other similarly active individuals just pointing to that conversation piece you were you were pointing out but i think that's such a that's such yeah. a fascinating way to frame this as a parallel to to hayek's notion of prices yeah well thanks for for that quote i mean it's always a very good feeling to have one's work read back to one <laughs> and and by somebody who gets it that's <laughs> great thanks so but but no but but i mean i in, in the book you're quoting from which is a critical political economy i i, I try to do a weird thing which is to bring together horkheimer and hayek by claiming that there's such a thing as left-wing hayekianism so you, you can be you can agree with hayek on emergence you know the 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 virtues of free emergence in a in a free society and i, I do agree with that i think you know anyone who's even a bit left-wing and anarchical realizes how important it is to let things emerge from the bottom up uh, and otherwise we're not really free you know we're kind of constrained by ideas like religions and church doctrine or whatever but hayek was completely wrong in the way he restricted the scope of emergence and indeed i think in in a in a society where we would be free to think and debate and form our critical views and and change them in dialogue with others and and so on which incidentally and i find that fascinating is actually the core of the enlightenment <laughs> and, and in that sense capitalism and and of course that that's not a novel insight but capitalism is utterly opposed to western civilization and the enlightenment when 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 the american right nowadays harps on and on not only in the us but but right now i'm i'm, I'm following you know i'm very uh, i'm very americanophile and i'm i'm following the whole political process very closely and it's, it's god bless you <laughs> it's maddening to see this constant conflation of western civilization values you know apart from the racism and the white supremacy and so on which is horrible mm. but but even just from the social science and economics side the, the conflation of western civilization and western rationality with capitalism I mean, capitalism is the epitome of the denial. I mean, Marx was—I'm sorry, but Marx was entirely correct in that. And I'm not a Marxist in the sense of—I I don't necessarily adhere to what's been done with Marxism afterwards, with Marxist thought and so on. But 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 he, as a humanist, was absolutely right in pinpointing the fact that capitalism destroys both natural resources and human resources. It, it destroys nature and the worker together for the same purpose of extracting value and surplus. And by doing that, it just stifles and eventually just destroys the ability for discussion, debate, and so on. Although not completely. I mean, there's been fascinating work by, by French uh, sociologists in particular who kind of excavated very uh, interesting 19th century uh, stuff on how workers in the midst of oppression and alienation and exploitation would 
read and learn and form collectives to talk with each other at night. And, you know, it's, it's just amazing that the, the, the resources that some people try to mobilize in, in, at, the, at the height of capitalist oppression. Anyway, but it's true that if we were free to debate, if we were a truly free, enlightened society, in in the Western sense, here I'm, I'm being very Western. Okay, uh, well, what would emerge is obviously not just a set of prices, and probably not not mainly, but uh, a set of frameworks and ideas. What you know, Charles Taylor calls strong evaluative frameworks, which would help us to progressively shape our ideas about what we want to do in the future together, you know, and we, we debate and talk and fight and, you know, that's what democracy is for. And we'd vote occasionally and maybe even very often, including inside businesses and have democratic firms and so on. But, but, but this whole dynamic of the emergence of the esprit de critique or the critical spirit of a of society is, is indeed something that I've never seen mentioned anywhere in this way and i think it, it is helpful because it, it, it kind of shows that the whole talk about a free market is such an incredibly reductive notion of what f- a free economy could actually be when so when you're writing about the economy as a complex system and given that complexity the question of how we can take action to intervene and improve and change outcomes you referenced a book titled Harnessing Complexity uh, by Robert Axelrod and Michael Cohen. Yes. Oh, my God. And, that's been a long time. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I thought it was really interesting what you brought in, right? In their work, um, when thinking about the strategies available to us as a collective, as a society to intervene, uh, w- one of the leverage points that they look to that we can use to affect change is the amount of variety in that system. And in particular, they're writing to kind of help readers think through how to influence and change that amount of variety, which, as they describe, uh, then changes the balance between exploration and exploitation. It alters the structure of interactions within the system, and it adjusts the way that the success is measured and amplified. And all those outcomes are affected, according to them, by this level of variety in the system. And so if we feel that today the system is over-indexed on exploitation, on structuring interactions in a way that is not producing an acceptable basis for human or planetary flourishing and is measuring or amplifying the, the kinds of success um, that do not really align with our, our kind of critically reflected values, this, this question is, okay, how do we inject more variety? And in your work, and I think your review of Horkheimer's, you talk about these kind of injections of variety that can alter the path of a system in, in, under a number of really fun labels. There's disordering potentialities, there's rational nonconformism, even conscious disadaptation. Uh, but, but I'm curious if you could tell me a little more about the role that kind of uh, variety and, and disordering potentialities play in all this. Right. So that, that, that actually uh, refers also to stuff that I've been doing more recently, which I'm still working on which is what I call the permacircular society. Um, I saw that in French, by the way. I, I looked for the English one. I said, yeah, oh, not no, yet. it's not yet. No, unfortunately. I... Right. So, so the idea of, of, of variety is, and again, uh, what I've tried to do seems to be like a, a pattern in me, which I, maybe I should investigate that through some therapy. I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I take stuff from, you know, like kind of conservative literature because basically that book you know harnessing complexity is not really progressive most complexity theorists have very strong 
potential ties, you know, to business uh, spheres and consulting. So that so they will use those tools for. I mean, you know, I, I don't mean to 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 just say that wholesale, but but there's a tendency in, in a lot of in a lot of the complexity literature to 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 go Hayekian in a way to use those tools for. You know, to show businesses how to accumulate fitness credits and, and, and to be to be more more efficient and, and more competitive and, and so on and so forth. So, so I, I tend to take ideas like that and actually turn them towards uh, progressive uses. And, and so, indeed, when you when you, you you can see this idea of diversity and rational long conformity and so on purely in terms of business innovation and being, you know, thinking outside of the box and all those things that business consultants routinely churn out, you know, mm-hmm. you can make or, a lot of money on those reports. That, that's right. You can, you can. And, 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 and that's part of the, the, the internal dynamics of capitalism itself. It, it's very good at recuperating at kind of, you know, sterilizing interesting ideas. Uh, but, but I try, I guess I try to desterilize them in, in a way. Um, and, and and so my idea is more to say, uh, in line with you know uh, Roberto Unger, who's this this great uh, Brazilian American philosopher from Harvard, who who talked about democratic experimentalism. His point being that a democracy uh, is more flourish is all the more flourishing the more there is a spirit of experimenting inside society. If we want to have a an innovative society that goes towards progressive goals. We need to free the, the the potential for social and, as it were, ecological experimentation. Okay, communities, new ways of life, and so on. And try to try to support that in in a way through what have you, you know, basic income and, and other means. The, the The idea is, especially given the ecological predicament now, where we we really don't have the the solutions. Yet, we have te- technical solutions. We have some ideas about how to build a stationary economy and so on, but we don't have the societal solutions about what is actually going to work as we descend, you know, energetically and as, as we as we simplify and degrow our economies. I mean, so the idea is that dissensus and and disagreement and peaceful you know, juxtaposition of different experiments is going to be very important just as a, as a kind of search engine for society to find the ways of life that are going to work with less energy, less consumption, less money, you know, and so on. And for that, you need to just let pioneers go out and try it. And so the diversity you need to generate is, is, is a diversity of different critical and existential frameworks that people have worked out and want to put into practice as, a, as, as, as experiments, you know, alternative communities, uh, eco-villages, what have you. But, so the, the, the main idea here is that all of these experiments, of course, are going to take place within the still dominant system. So that's what I call, that's what I call rational disadaptation or critical acceptance. It's, it's, it's a, it's a way of being in the system while being outside of it. The, the, a, a really free economy would be one that would allow that uh, experimentation to happen, that would even welcome it. 
as opposed to making it as hard as possible, which is basically what our governments and systems are doing right now. It's funny. Whenever I get on this theme, I always think of a dialogue between uh, Milton Friedman, uh, an imagined dialogue between Friedman and Theodore Adorno, where, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's another one. Hayek and Horkheimer or Friedman and Adorno. You're right. Yeah, that's another one. Okay. And what do you imagine there? So you can imagine, you know, Friedman is very associated with this phrase of capitalism giving us the freedom to choose. It's the freedom to choose. And then Adorno has, I wish, I don't, I wish he had said this to him directly, but Adorno has this phrase, you know, gives us the freedom to choose what is always the same, right? There's a, there's a boundary that, that grows invisible. Well, uh, and George Monbiot, you know, the, the, the British ecological uh, uh, columnist and, and writer, he, he wrote a, a few decades ago that capitalism gives us a huge amount of small choices and no big choice. So the large choices are all made for us. You know, we, we have all supermarkets and we, we don't have a choice about that. And we have no choice about the big orientations and we're not asked to, you know, express choices about big orientations. That's, that's the idea of an absence of critical performance of the system. And uh, even in schools, you know, there's very little of that. And but but we have huge choices in, in which brand of cereal to buy or something, you know. Yeah. Right. So that's yeah, exactly. It reminds me of the way I was just reading. Uh, Charles Taylor has this book, you know, the Malaise of Modernity, and I don't remember just right, but he he has this idea he he sketches out where essentially a lot of the freedom that is generated is is freedom around choices an individual can make. And a lot of the freedom that is withheld is the freedom that a collective can make, where there's, you know, you need coordination, collaboration. The frame of life, the, the, the big framing conditions are, are usually withheld by elites, you know, uh, fr from the people. And the people are given crumbs of, of I mean, I, I don't mean to be demagogic, but, you know, it's, it's like there's an there's a aspect of that, you know, um, Again, uh, I'm being a bit facetious, but uh, yeah, right, yeah. And I, I do, I do want to get, I think, concrete about this for a second. I, I want to talk about the specific ways and, and policies that can maybe fit this bill of promoting variety. And you already mentioned this a little bit, but you co-authored an essay on the role that a guaranteed income can play in helping move us towards a social system that actually supports agents, and as you mentioned, you know, expressing their. I, expressing their critical reflections, I like to think about it as living their critiques, not just feeling them. Exactly. Living them. Exactly. That's right. And in, in that essay, you write about how, you know, if we're really committed to a kind of deep value pluralism and not one that remains kind of confined within the capitalist mode of production, the Adorno critique, if we're really committed to supporting variety in our forms of life, then the choice between various forms of life needs to be accessible to citizens without carrying disproportionate costs, right? Like massive income loss or losing access to healthcare, a pension, and so on. People need to be able to experiment with living differently without getting buried in deprivation. And I think there's something crucially important here in, in this idea of a variety or lack thereof in the kinds of lives that are not only theoretically possible, right, but pragmatically. So, Tell me a little bit about the role that you see something like a basic income or any other policies in this space playing in making that possible. Well, actually, the to me, the basic income is the is the most salient there. I mean, I did my thesis uh, in in Louvain in Belgium uh, with with one of the main proponents of basic income, who's Philippe Van Paris. Oh, really? Oh, that's yeah. so cool. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, 
he at the time I, I I collaborated with him on the newsletter of the Basic Income European Network, and I, I you know I, so I, I very early on I kind of was plunged into the basic income literature. I, I I wasn't a great fan at the time. I, I found it interesting, but and he was working on it full time. And, and and funnily enough, now that he has, I mean, that was like thirty years ago. But but now that he he's moved on partly to other topics. I, I've suddenly come back to, to the, the, the topic of basic income massively, but from a pretty different angle. I mean, his point back then was to say basic income is basically a libertarian, a real libertarian measure, which allows everyone to live in any way they want. Okay. Surfers who want to do nothing but surf should be allowed to do that. And he had a dialogue with Rawls about it. Rawls disagreed about that, and so on and so forth. Anyway, he he was he was really preoccupied with the maximum uh, diversity and and variety of, of of ways of life, but you know, including I, I don't mean to diss surfers at all. So sorry, surfers, but you know, mindless ways of life in the sense of if you let's put it to the extreme, if you want to sit on your couch and watch TV all day, and that's none of the government's business. So you should you should just because you live and exist, you should be allowed to an income that allows you at least to to to, to satisfy basic necessities and, and and have a modest but 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 good uh, social network and, and and safety net and so on and so forth. That was that was his point. So I thought that was interesting, but I also thought, well, I don't know. I mean, it, it's kind of not very anti-capitalist and not very potentially not very progressive. So I don't know. Uh, but 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 I came back to the idea of basic income recently, uh, more from the Andre Gores. I mean, the political ecology. I love Andre Gores. Yeah, the, the 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 political ecology angle, which says, you know, whatever else you do in a society to foster a harmonious descent towards a smaller footprint. You you can you you can change you can try to change education. You can try to uh, democratize businesses and, and, and so on and so forth. All that's important, but and, and Gore's only, you know, rallied to this point at the end of his life. He was actually opposed to basic income in the beginning because he, from a Marxist oh, point that. of view, yeah, I think he 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 felt that it was anti-labor in a way. It, it risked devaluing the the role of work in society. Uh, but then I, I he, you know, he shifted and and and. Toward the end of his life, he was much more uh, uh, favorable to basic income. And um, his point was to say, well, whatever else you do in a society to make it progress and, and, and emancipate, you will not be able to have people actually enroll or, or you know, be, be, be engaged uh, towards the new ways of life that are needed if you don't have a basic income. It doesn't mean that the basic income is the end all and be all of, of it. You know, you, you need to do other things in society as well, but it's an essential tool to create a kind of baseline, a level playing field for, for everyone to, to know that they can safely, modestly, but safely exit the, the, you know, the, we- the wage work treadmill and go and experiment with other stuff. And so, so to me, that's the. I mean, the emancipatory role of basic income needs to be uh, uh, insisted upon, and and in that sense, it's an essential tool. And the the other tool that that comes along with it, and uh, which is of a very different type, 
is uh, monetary reform, the, the change of the, the monetary system, the way that money is being created in our system is, is, is deeply problematic. It's, it's destructive of the environment, but it's also, it's also extremely selective in the wrong way. You know, it, 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 bank, bank loans are being given to, uh, to, to, to businesses that, you know, make profits, which means basically don't really care about their workforce and so on and so forth. So mm -hmm. the whole, the, if you want a, a society where people are happy to experiment and, and can finally exercise these two capacities that we've been talking about, you know, the critical and existential uh, capacity for reflection, you need to have a way to, for them, for all of us to disconnect from the prevailing drudgery. <laughs> Maybe there's a better way than basic income, of which I don't know. But for, for now, my 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 equilibrium rests on on basic income as a as a definitely a key a cornerstone component of a of a society that creates uh, a diversity and, and variety in, in the way that we've been talking about. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, basic income also for me was actually the first space, it brought me back into being interested in, in policy and pragmatics I, from the kind of critical theory world. And it was Andre Gores who, who did that. Um, but I heard two things in there I want to draw out that are really interesting. The first, the, the, the way that we create money in the economy currently is effectively banks create them when they, when they create a loan. They just write it into existence. With the support um, of the central bank, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think it is what you're saying, because this goes beyond my comprehension, maybe you can clarify for me. Are you saying that a basic income could be an alternative way to create money in the economy and rather than filing exactly. it through banks, you file it through people? Indeed. So this, this, it's the whole topic of uh, the uh, quantitative easing for the people and, and stuff like that, which is basically very simple, but, but completely heretical. You know, it's like, uh, it's simply to say, look, the central bank should not be beholden to the banking system, which is a tall order because it was created to be the, you know, the, the, the arm of the banking system. So, oh, well, and the central bank could just completely, I mean, my, my friend Yanis Varoufakis has written a book called the another now he, he advocates a basic income being paid by the central bank on, on accounts that citizens would have at the central bank directly, you know, short circuiting the, we don't need the banking system at all. Uh, for, for most purposes, um, if we had a democratically reasonable, you know, of course, we always need checks and balances and we, you know, there's, there's no naive way of doing this. But if we had a central bank that were, was really geared towards what we've been talking about, like creating a, a truly free economy of, of critical and existentially uh, free agents, the least it could do is uh, the central bank could just create money because as you said correctly it can just create it from scratch it, especially in countries like the US or Switzerland which are sovereign in terms of money creation or or the European Central Bank any 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 central bank could do it like free monetary creation and, and give it to the people and as opposed to the banks I mean the, the fact of, of funneling it through the banks is a is again it's one of those structures we talked about early on in our in our discussion which is mm, been one of those totally reified but intentionally kept reified structures that that are actually completely malleable and changeable and arbitrary not arbitrary but you know historically there's reasons for it but but 
not at all a necessity of nature. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. it's interesting too, because one of the things that makes basic income such a an interesting and both kind of inclusive and kind of uh, contentious terrain of debate is that a basic income is not a particular policy; it's an umbrella, and it can be designed a million different ways. And depending on the details, it can be a very libertarian, conservative, right wing policy, or exactly. it can be a very far left. So it's it's a big space. Well, that's that's why you know that's why I have colleagues who are in favor of other ways of creating that diversity, which we could also talk about. I mean, one is the so-called job guarantee in in modern money theory, which is uh, basically the idea that the state would be an employer of last resort for anyone who wants to not be working in the the mainstream wage sector, that the government could provide all these experimental uh, jobs and new sectors of, you know, whatever that we need today for, for, for diversity and variety and experimentation. And it, that, that, that's, that's also a possibility, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, but, but then, you know, the, the, the brunt of the problem rests on whether that government itself is going to, what kind of jobs is it going to guarantee? So, you know, there's never a, right. there's never a hundred percent guarantee that it'll be progressive, but well, okay. And, and then, you could sharpen it even by introducing a so-called economic transition income, which is a, something one of my colleagues here in Lausanne is working on. Uh, she's proposing that we should funnel the funding of this job guarantee through cooperatives at the local level that would themselves know and, and determine which you know green and, and social jobs are needed in the communities. And they would ask for funding from the government. And that way, we would avoid the fact that a central government is determining, you know, for the whole country uh, what, what's needed at each level. That can fall dystopian quickly. That's right. And so, so these these variations that I've just talked about are ways of kind of modalizing. The, it's the same idea generally as basic income, but it tries to it tries to 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 narrow the the scope so that there's maybe less risk of it becoming neoliberal although you know i mean there's never a 100% guarantee so i'm i'm open to you know i mean that the way we create this uh, variety that that's going to foster experimentation and 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 critical and and existential um, exp- uh, you know uh, reflection is is a bit still open to to debate but but yeah. certainly you see these are i mean if we come back to our discussion before, suppose I say that to the Santa Fe Institute, what are they going to do with that? Poor them. I, I, I don't mean to, to, to do Santa Fe Institute bashing, you know, but, but, but uh, there's actually great people there, but, you know, you know, Sam Bowles and pe- very progressive people who, who are just kind of more, more interested in modeling, but whatever uh, uh, the, 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 the what would they do with that they they could do models where you introduce a basic income as a variable the, i don't see how they would catch the 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 question of whether or not uh the basic income is going to help people experiment or just make them sit on couches I, I don't know how you catch that uh i don't know how you catch the notion of, of emancipation in an equation see i mean so here you with this topic you necessarily need to go into sociology and hermeneutics and psychology and even philosophy to just work out the the way Gores and Van Paris and, and many people have done, you know. I mean Philippe Van Paris is actually a sociologist and philosopher, he's not an economist. He you know, so 
And that's why I liked working with him because there was this openness to adding these dimensions of, 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 uh, of non, non formalized. I mean, he was very rigorous. We did a lot of analytical philosophy, but, but the non, non mathematical considerations, um, to, to the discussion, because I, I think when you do policy, you, the modeling approach is, is very poor. It can help for a few super macro variables or, or you know, in, 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 in environmental matters, it can help, certainly, because it, we need, you know, broad brush numbers of emissions at the world level and so on. And, I mean, there, you know, models do help, of course. And so I'm not, I'm not against modeling but when you when you go into interpreting what kind of policy you need to make society better i'm extremely doubtful uh that we can work without the what wilbur calls the the, the left hand uh, quadrants mm. totally doubtful let me try an idea out on you that i've been turning over for a while basic income is one policy that has the potential to broaden people's horizons of, of actionable forms of life uh, but as we've mentioned, it's only one example. There are plenty of others that feed the same dynamic, right, of broadening that repertoire, of enabling people to, to live their critiques and act on their critical reflection, as we mentioned earlier. And, and so I've been thinking about how to name this broader dynamic of which basic income is, is just one example, right? The sentiment is this idea of broadening people's fears of, of actionable forms of life, but that's a mouthful and, it, and it's still not quite right, I don't think. I think that if, if we were to boil it all the way down, the thing that matters most is how our social structures affect our relationship to time. Um, and specifically, the question of how free we are to spend our time in ways that align with our values, as opposed to only being free to spend our time in ways that you know the labor market values. And I, I want to be clear, I'm not just saying that I think everyone should work less. Um, I'm not saying let's just reduce the working week because work is one of the primary ways that many people express and live and embody their values, right? It's not the only way and it's not everyone's way. But I also think this is why you mentioned that Andre Gores was initially skeptical of basic income because he didn't want to relinquish the prospect of of work as a site of freedom in human life. And I think Hannah Arendt has, has really good points on this as well. And I think that the philosopher Martin Hagland, he's actually, he's phenomenal on this point of making this distinction. He has a book titled uh, This Life, which is one of my most strongly recommended books. Um, and he argues for this idea of socially available free time as the way that we would measure value in a truly emancipatory society. And socially available free time is not just leisure time as we understand it today, right? It's time where our actions are aligned with our values, where we can own both the means and the ends of what we're doing, which in many ways is kind of antithetical to wage labor. But as I read your work, and in particular about the spiritual damage, the mutilation of what we are becoming, what we're making ourselves, to me, the mechanism of action there, that which is perpetrating you know, so much of the damage, is lacking the freedom and the, the social support to align our actions with our forms of life. Right, which, which comes down to freedom, or a lack thereof, in how we might spend our time. So I'm, I'm curious how this all strikes you, and, and what role you see kind of the selling of our time, both as a culprit, but also as a strategic focus moving forward. Hmm, gosh, I mean, obviously, as a, as a professor, I, I, I was talking to one of my Belgian colleagues the other day and friends, and we were musing about how 
and as scholars, we're as close as it gets to to being basic income uh, beneficiaries, you know, in a in a in a in a wage society. I mean, we we have the we have a, such a lot of time compared to you know the average person in society to to go after our interests and and do something that we think is meaningful and so on. Um, so I, I totally get how. I mean, I, I I I've often thought of how I could never ever have actually lived a life of uh, wage labor, the, the the life that most people around me are are leading. To be honest, uh, so I, I I totally concur and and, and I, I see exactly what you mean by the fact that one of the most destructive aspects and the most kind of deeply damaging aspects of capitalism is indeed the the fact that not only energy but time just which is a kind of equivalent of energy but but in terms of intensity is is given to sometimes things that are honestly so futile and useless and even when they're useful they're they're so stressful and destructive that yeah uh, definitely the reduction of working time would be one of the main uh, aspects and all the more so because you know when we when we're talking about degrowth and and the necessity for ecological uh, uh readaptation and, and conversion of our economies uh, it turns out in in the research that i see all around that the, the reduction of of product the reduction of productivity and the reduction of working time are the two main factors which are going to help you know, reduce the size of our economies and and the, the damage they do to humans and to to the to the planet. And so, absolutely, I mean, the the, the fact that uh, we work, we'd be able to work less and uh, and 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 be less productive, which means produce less <laughs> in the in the in the in the you know shorter working time that we that we do are two major components and, 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 and that so I, I, I totally agree with that. Basic income would, would help in that in a sense because uh, at least if we have a government that you know uh, prevents businesses from from internalizing the basic income and and, 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 and diminishing wages uh, in the same proportion, which would be terrible. Um, but but in addition, the reduction of working time is crucial because it simply as i think you said just just before it, it just liberates so much potential for experimentation i mean we can't experiment if we're working one or two jobs uh, a week i mean I, the stories i hear from the states are just so yeah. incredibly sad and, and terrifying you know people have to having to work 80 hours a week to barely make ends meet i mean i don't know how barbaric you can get um and of, of course in, in, under those conditions not only People do people not experiment because they don't have time and energy or or the mental space to do it, but even more they they kind of tend to gravitate towards uh, necessarily quick fixes within the system, not not changing it, but asking, and you know, so asking for higher wages and and wanting economic growth to keep on going, and which is only fair, you know. I'm not I'm not being derogatory here, but but I think. The, the the possibility for the economy to become much more uh, critically and existentially reflexive, you know, reflective in the sense of allowing critical and, and existential reflection, it, it really is going to go uh, through uh, 
reduction of, of working time. Definitely. You're, yeah. you're totally right. Yeah, mm. I, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. I'm thinking back, I'm recalling this idea of you know, where the amount of variety in the system is, is a lever we can pull to change the outcomes. And there's an interesting tension here, I think, between, and, and you've written about this, between the idea of a state or a government that intentionally designs programs and structures that would afford this kind of real diversity in forms of living and the capacity of that state to effectively manage and, and govern its population. You know, I'm thinking back to uh, James Scott's book, Seeing Like a State, where his thesis right. is that states have intentionally labored against that kind of real existential diversity, right? Having gypsies and people using forms of exchange outside centrally recognized currencies, it makes it really hard for the, the state to tax or conscript or just manage a population. And so the states sought to, to reduce that diversity and make societies legible to them. And the more diversity in forms of life and, and the real diversity, not the facade, uh, the more difficult it, it the, the hypothesis is that the more difficult it becomes for the state to to control and govern, especially you know in a time where we're seeing the value of strong state capacity in, in through COVID and the pandemic and and also the failures of not having it. And you touch on this a bit in your chapter you wrote for uh, Convivial Futures. You looked at the role that public financing and money creation should play in fostering a, a convivial society. But given that public financing invokes the centrality of the state, so tell me about this tension between wanting to use those centrally provisioned resources, but also wanting to kind of not lean too much on a centralized mode of provisioning? That's a, that's a complicated question. It, it's, it's a, I mean, offhand, I would say there's no intrinsic need for a state that provides high level goods. Okay. Like monetary emission, education, healthcare, you know, so public goods that need to be provided at a, at an umbrella level, because that's where they're the most efficiently provided. Okay. There's no need for that to necessarily imply a centralized state. I mean, you know, if, if, if I think both Switzerland and, and, and these US are, are, are examples of, of potentially how that could work. I mean, you, you, in both countries, you have a you have a you have a federal government that has you know. Uh, in, in practice, then there's all sorts of corruption and, and perversions of the model. So I'm 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 not saying that it doesn't happen in practice, but in in itself, there shouldn't be a contradiction between the fact that there is a level of organization of the provision of public goods that coheres with you know, the the, the nature of the public goods in question and uh, the fact that. Many other things are being done at the at the lower levels of, of governance, all the way down to you know municipalities and stuff. And so I I I, I see the point. Of course, historically, what I'm saying sounds kind of Pollyannish and and, and 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 idealistic. So Scott's point is entirely valid historically. That the fact that because most nation states really solidified in the 18th, 19th century, which was a time where centralization and the destruction of, of cultural minorities in, 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 in nation states and so on was a thing. It was, I mean, there was this belief in, in universal humanity. It was a time of colonialism. It was a time of all those, those horrible things that we, that, that Europe basically exported everywhere and, and, and especially England, but not only. And, and so of course that, that, that marked that, that, epoch of, of the formation of nation states as being both 
you know, providing goods in a sense, but also being oppressive and centralized and, and destructive. And But I don't see the necessity for that to be the case. I, I could very well imagine a a political philosophy of, of, of kind of anarchical federalism where you'd have, it, it would mean that it, it would ideally uh, the criterion should be at which level is the public good in question or the good in question best provided. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, and, and then for COVID, I mean, my experience also here in Switzerland was that, you know, provision at the, at the cantonal level, not so great because then you had, different norms if you, you you drove 20 miles and you had different norms you know and it's like yeah i don't know i mean <laughs> maybe for that you know for these these and, and climate policy as well you you know city climate policy is fine symbolically it just doesn't really do the job if, if there's no national and international climate policy to go with so if we could be just reasonable and and i realize how how kind of <laughs> optimistic that sounds and almost a bit stupid but but if we could be so reasonable as to just have a roster of you know this is the level of governance at which this kind of good can be meaningfully provided maybe education is fine at the cantonal or at the you know more local level because you have cultural differences and what have you and it's all up to up for discussion but you 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 would have uh, a possibility for for doing both you know and 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 but, but fundamentally, it does require a kind of relinquishing the idea that governance and political power are there for the unification of everything, you know. And, and, and it, it just requires that in line with, you know, a critical and, and, and existential uh, reflect, reflection or, or, or rationality that, that we, we become, you know, quietly able to distinguish between things that need to be distinguished you know it, it, it and and we we're not always very good at that because we either think everything should be done by the state you know and i think that's what uh that's where scott is right i mean if we if we kind of fetishize the state then we're in trouble but we're also in trouble if we fetishize uh the local community you know in in, in ways that are happening in, in the u.s right now it's you know it's this whole thing about states rights or even within states rights and the the, the problematic religious freedom is, is very strange to me in the states and the way that some communities are allowed to just completely disconnect from from the rest and, and, and do whatever they want and but but that's not a that that's that's a that's a bug of of modernity up to now the modern nation state it doesn't it's not necessarily a feature of any state that one could uh, imagine if if one were to you know kind of be more receptive to the kinds of ideas we've been discussing i think we could indeed it's i mean it's interesting that you raise that that question because it we could indeed have a different political philosophy of the of of the state that goes with everything that we've been talking about yeah mm. yeah that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I keep, I relate it in my mind to, there's a, a neuroscientist, Eric Well, I had on, on the show a little while back. And he has this paper on what he calls causal emergence. And he's looking at proteins and biology and all this. But in that paper, he's arguing um, that, you know, there is a tendency within science to want to be as reductive as possible in the proper level of analysis and the most kind of causally efficacious uh, way to intervene right. into the system is at the lowest possible level. And he tried to show that actually, in kind of nested complex systems, 
uh, depending on what you're trying to do, sometimes you know this level is appropriate. Sometimes you want to go up to a higher macro scale, and and it sounds very similar to here. Is that you know contextually, depending on the problem, there are going to be more or less efficacious scales at which we want to deal with it. Uh, and that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, yeah. I think wow. I think that's a pretty good place to begin uh, winding down. I, I wonder if anything is still lingering on your mind that you wanted to bring into the mix. Oh my God! You, you <laughs> no. <laughs> I have to say, I really appreciate your the thoroughness of your reading of all this, and and uh, it's 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 really great. I mean, I've, I've if anything, I've I've learned stuff about my own work by 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 discussing this like this uh it's it's fascinating so i'm i'm very happy about this no 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 i i have nothing to add for now i think i've spoken enough <laughs> yeah well, yeah christian thanks so much this has been such a pleasure i really really had a blast well i i appreciate it immensely as well it's it's a very rare op- thing for for a scholar to have their work uh, read that thoroughly and that that you know that spot on i'm i, I really i'm very impressed anyway All thanks right. so much for your for your uh for the time you've devoted to my work and thanks to all the listeners for staying on and being interested. Yeah. All right, that'll do it. If you want to learn more about Christian or peek around his books or anything else that we mentioned during the conversation, you can head over to the episode page, which you'll find at musingmind.org slash podcast and clicking on Christian. If you enjoyed this and you want to pair it with a kind of past episode of a similar flavor, I'd recommend my conversation with Barnaby Rain on capitalism and the self. Uh, we go into a lot more detail there about the ideas of the Frankfurt School and more generally, the relationship between capitalist societies and the development of what Christian today called interiors, right? Subjectivity. Um, and, and during the conversation, I mentioned it to Christian, but this also reminded me of the episode with Chris Letheby, where we discussed the cognitive science and philosophy of unselfing and, and using psychedelic experience as a strong example. But unselfing is not limited to psychedelics. As I'm, as I'm always trying to articulate, the rigidity of our own conscious experience is relational, which is to say it is to a significant degree socially constructed. So I find Lethaby's idea of unselfing is also useful in this terrain of emancipatory social science. Um, and even complemented by my conversation with Ruben Laukinen, right, about how reducing that rigidity, in his case via meditation, is not only an individual practice, but a social one. And if this idea of emancipatory social science resonates with you, and if you have any ideas or resources or references that you think can add to it, reach out. Let me know. Um, I'm really interested in, in what it would look like to actually develop this a little further, what it might look like. But anyway, that's for another time. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.